Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today my guest is Dr. Jamar Tisby. Uh, Dr. Tisby is the New York Times bestselling author of The Caller of Compromise. He's the president of The Witness, a Black Christian collective, and he writes and speaks extensively on matters of race, religion, politics, culture, and the intersection of all of those things. His, his most recent book is called How to Fight Racism. It's a, it's a young reader's edition of his book of the same name that released at the beginning of 2021. Uh, so Jamar, thank you for being on the program today. Absolutely. As you listed, I get all the fun topics that mm-hmm. you want to talk mm-hmm. about at the dinner table. So yes, makes for an interesting life. Yeah, and I want actually I want to begin and acknowledge that and acknowledge the work that you do, uh, how how difficult it is emotionally how difficult it is spiritually, uh, how draining it has to be, because you're, you're really putting yourself in the line of fire uh, in the hopes that the work of conciliation could be accomplished. So you know, I thank you for the work that you do, because it'd be very easy. And I think people would understand if you just said, this is too heavy, I need to step back from this. To purposely put yourself in the middle of it uh, takes a strength that I don't know that I would have if I was in your position. Well, we don't know the strength that we have until we're put into a position where we have to be strong. Mm -hmm. And so I've discovered along the way reservoirs of strength that I didn't know I have. And honestly, much of what enables me to persist in this work is is beyond myself. It's it's Mm -hmm. the community around me. It's uh, the faith in, in the God I believe in. And so it's been obviously very difficult, but also uh, enlightening and encouraging in the sense of you never know what you can do until you try. So uh, I think that's for all of us in this racial justice journey. What was it for you that made you realize this was an area that you needed to step into and be a part of the conversation? You know, I, I sometimes am envious a little bit of those folks who knew from the time when they were like nine years old exactly what they would do mm. in life. I'm not one of those people. I, I sort of have stumbled and bumbled my way into a lot of different things, all of which have shaped me, all of which have led me to this work. So I'm a Black person in America. <laughs> mm. Like a lot of what I'm dealing with is from my own personal experience. I remember getting followed around by uh, police officers in the arcade of all places like it just boggles my mind what are we going to do pick up a whole arcade game and like walk <laughs> out with it um uh so that's my personal experience and also i became a teacher in the mississippi delta on the arkansas side and it's in one of the poorest counties in the entire country a place where i still live to this day and seeing all of these issues that have to do with systemic injustice, uh, generational poverty, a disinvestment in public schools, lack of adequate health care, taking on a human shape and face in the form of my 11 and 12 year old students mm. makes puts an urgency there. And then, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of the racial justice conversations and actions that have been taking place lately, as well as my study of history. And looking at just how egregious this nation has been toward Black people and people of color, typically in the name of power and profit. Mm -hmm. So all of those things, and most importantly, my faith leads me to say, there's something we got to do something about. Right. Yeah. I'd like to address, or or rather, I'd like for you to address, uh, probably the number one objection that I hear uh, whenever we try to educate children on racism like you're doing here, and that could be younger kids or even up to teenagers, where the, the, the objection seems to be uh, they're too young for these kinds of conversations. Uh, obviously, you don't believe that, but how do, you, how do you handle that sort of objection to even begin to get the conversation going? I think we got to realize as adults, kids are aware of a lot more than we think they are. And they're often aware, a lot more aware of the topics we hoped they weren't aware of. So Mm -hmm. uh, it it could be anything from sex to racism. They know a lot more 
than we think they do. There's a famous uh, um, experiment called the doll test where uh, scientists showed, you know, five-year-olds, white dolls and black dolls and uh, asked them which was prettier, which was uglier, which was smarter or, you know, all of this. And then even at that age, kids, both black and white, exhibiting uh, preferences for or more favorable favorable attitudes towards the white dolls and more negative uh, associations with the black dolls. And these are like kindergartners, first graders. So it's already happening. Our kids are already being socialized to think in racial terms. Um, the other thing is when kids ask questions, that's the perfect time to talk about it. And kids can ask questions, you know, about skin color and about, you know, why things are the way they are at a very early age. And it's best to respond to those questions as best you can, rather than sort of ignoring them or shuffling them off to the side because it's quote unquote inappropriate. So our young people are a lot more prepared um, or a lot more curious or a lot more exposed than, than, than we realize they are. The, the, the other thing is, they are a lot more exposed to these realities than maybe some of us were growing up. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they, they've probably heard of something like Black Lives Matter. They've understood the necessity of protests as high schoolers are, are marching in the streets to protect themselves and their classmates from shooting sprees inside their own schools. They're mad about uh, the, 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 earth burning up and climate change and us adults just leaving them holding uh, the smoldering remains of what was once a beautiful earth. So they're already sort of tuned in to these broader issues of social justice and race is part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I speaking from my experience as a youth pastor, I, I have a lot of hope for the upcoming generations uh, and for the awareness that they have and for just the i think the maturity that they have shown because they have to deal with these issues because it's it surrounds them and uh, it seems like they are able they're 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 willing they they need to learn they need to to be focused um it, it's like any any issue in in life um, but I think that if we can, if we can re really train this generation and give them practical things to do um, beyond, beyond just social uh, media activism, uh, actual practical things that they can do uh, to make a difference. And that, that's where your book comes in. So this, this book is, is How to Fight Racism. It's the Young Readers Edition uh, last in, in January 2021, so about a year ago, you released the um, the adult version of this book as geared toward adults. What what is different in this version? Because obviously, what an adult might be able to do in the context that they're in is different than the context that that a kid, uh, you know, late elementary, middle school, early high school would find themselves in. Absolutely. And I just want to make a, another point real quickly mm. to, to what we were previously talking about. I do think it's important that as adults, we don't buy into this idea that racism is really generational and mm. that young people are automatically going to sort of be more aware and more mm. progressive mm. on racial issues. Like, like, like you, you, you don't just age out of it, right? right. Like I've been in I've been in so many conversations where where people have basically said, you know, what do we do about racism? Well, you just got to let this this older generation die off. Right. They were they were born and raised in a context where racism was normalized. You're not going to change their views. But young people, they get it. They're more aware. And once these folks with these bad mindsets, you know, sort of enter retirement age and fade from the scene, we'll be better. That doesn't that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't work that way. I'll give you an example. Um, in the state of Mississippi, where I went to school for my PhD, there are all these historical markers for Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And almost as soon as these markers go up, they're vandalized, often by uh, people shooting at them. They're riddled with bullet holes. And 
in one of the most recent incidents, it was a, a Emmett Till marker that had gotten shot up. Um, I'm not sure if there was cameras nearby or what, but they ended up catching the vandals, which almost never happens. And they were freshmen at the University of Mississippi, mm-hmm. where I was getting my PhD. So, I mean, these are teenagers. There's no sense in which they're not part of this newer generation that is supposedly more racially enlightened, and yet they're still committing acts like this. Mm-hmm. So it's not as simple as like letting more young people be born and, and racism will take care of itself. Um, so that's why I do think it's, it's critically important that as adults, we really do take ownership of our own education and that of our children or young people when it comes to race. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to make that point really quickly yeah, yeah, uh, in case folks were thinking that. But to your question, what's different about this book? Oh, I'm so excited about this book. I shouldn't even say this as an author, <laughs> but I think the young reader's version might be better than the adult version. Mm-hmm. Um, you can buy both and compare the two. That's a, that's a fun way, to, a sneaky way to sell books here. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think because you know, for, for young people, you have to break things down so much and, and, and make it as straightforward as possible. That was a really helpful exercise for me and um, the, the, the writer I was working with, Josh Mosey. Um, so in this book, there's going to be like a lot more personal stories and illustrations from my life and my childhood to try to connect it. It was so much fun to write about growing up in the 90s in the era of the Bulls, Six Peak, and Michael Jordan, and how there's really no debate in my mind about who's the greatest of all time. Sorry, LeBron, but, you know, nostalgia plays into there. Uh, But connecting those stories from childhood to these issues of racism that we're facing today. The other cool part about it is we have these, like, short biographical highlights of people like Frederick Douglass and Fannie Lou Hamer and and so many others that that, that give kids a real-world example of folks who stood up and fought against racism, what they did and how they did it. Mm-hmm. And sort of related to that, there's there's a sense in which How to Fight Racism, the Young Reader's Edition, is a combination of the adult version and of my first book, The Color of Compromise. So there's a, a good section in the book for young readers that's focused on uh, US racial history. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how we got here and it tries to make the case for why we need to do something, even as kids, about racism in our country. So uh, I just think it has a lot of great elements. Of course, it's full of very practical steps and it's adapted for kids. So it's like read your student handbook to find out what you do. Where is there a grievance procedure for issues of uh, you know, racially motivated bullying or something like that? It's run for student council. If you want to make a difference in the policies and the rules at your school, you can actually start getting involved with politics right now. Uh, it's obviously starting a book club and things of that nature. So it's, it's practical, but it's practical on a level that kids from about fourth through sixth grade, ages eight to 12, can really um, enact in their own lives. Yeah. The, the core of the book uh, is this model that you've created called the ARC model, uh, awareness, relationships, commitment. Uh, and I won't explain it any more than that. I'll let you do the hard work. Uh, can you break that down for us? How did you, you know, why did you, um, how long did it take for you to perceive this model? And why do you think this is the model that works? So I actually, uh, gave the first iteration of this model back in I think 2014 mm-hmm. or 2015 so I've been working on it and thinking about it for a long time and what I noticed is that even in the racial justice literature the racial justice field we fall into a couple of errors one error is that we are heavy on the diagnosis but relatively short on the prescription mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we talk a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about what went wrong, how it went wrong. That's my whole first book, Color of Compromise, right? Christian complicity and racism. And, and then we give relatively scant attention to what do we do about what is wrong. 
So it's, you know, crammed into the back of a chapter, just a couple sentences or paragraphs, or it's uh, one chapter of a much longer book. And so you're, you're sort of still left with this question of what do we do? The second error I, I've seen or shortcoming I've seen is that even when we do provide more practical information, more practical action steps, it's hard to remember and it's hard to take action on because it's not given in a systematic way. So it's bullet points. It's a list of discussion questions. It's, you know, try this in this area, try that in that area. It's really hard to, to actually take action on unless you're an extremely motivated person. So I actually think the real value of both how to fight read of racism for adults and for young readers is not simply the practical steps. And believe me, it's a, the both books prioritize the practical. So you're going to walk away with some concrete action steps. But what I think is most important about the book isn't the specific actionable items I give. It's the framework, the mm. arc of racial justice. It's a way of thinking about racial justice that goes beyond a list, beyond just a couple of sentences at the end of a chapter. So it stands for awareness, relationships, commitment. And we need all three, just like the legs of a stool, to build a sturdy foundation for racial justice. Awareness, that's everything you do to build your knowledge, to build your database of information about race, racism, white supremacy. So that's things like reading a book, watching a documentary, listening to this podcast. Oh, we went wild on the awareness front in 2020 with the George Floyd protests and Amada Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And we were reading the books and we were watching the shows and we were having the book studies. It was great. But now more than a year out, we're like, where is everybody? Yeah. What happened to all that attention and momentum? Yeah. Well, it's because they were focused on this one area of awareness building. And that's necessary, but not sufficient. You also need relationships. And it really is compelling to me that in this work of racial justice, there's no way to do it but through people. Mm -hmm. And the reality is the only reason to do it is because of people. So we can't do an end around relationships, trying to get to solutions about racism. We have to go through people. We have to go through relationships. And so that means crossing the barriers that we have erected in order to divide people. That means having just as much intentionality at building bridges as we have in building walls. This is especially incumbent upon white folks who have spent centuries and generations putting up barriers between themselves and people of color. So that means obviously developing relationships across racial and ethnic lines. That's, that's, that's pretty critical for white folks, for black folks and people of color. It means cultivating communities that can affirm your own human dignity, places of replenishing and refreshing so that not so that you can remain there, but so that you can go out again into a world that in all kinds of ways seeks to dehumanize you um, because of what you look like or where you come from. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough either. It's necessary, but not sufficient. One of the biggest misunderstandings we have between black and white people in particular is not recognizing the systemic and the institutional factors of racism. That racism doesn't simply require an individual who hates other people or is prejudiced against other people because of their race. Racism can function within systems and institutions that were set up to create and perpetuate inequality. So commitment says, hey, friendships are great. Heart-to-heart uh, -heart talks over a cup of coffee is fine. It's not gonna do anything about the crisis of mass incarceration. It's not gonna do anything to free the uh, innocent person from death row. It's not going to do anything about the fact that Black mothers die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women. The only thing that's going to address those issues and other issues like it is working on a policy level. And by the way, policy doesn't just mean electoral politics. It's not just your state and your federal government. Your schools have policies. Your workplaces have policies. Even our churches have policies. 
And it's looking at all of those and saying, is the system set up in such a way that everyone gets a fair shot? And so all of that is encompassed in the arc of racial justice. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me with uh, the aspect of relationships uh, is I, th- that was one of the key elements in my own personal growth in mm. coming to a greater awareness of, of racism, of systemic racism in particular and inequality. Because I, I think growing up, growing up in a rural town that was, you know, 99 point whatever percent white, uh, racism was viewed as primarily a thing of the past you know this is where we were at 50 years ago you know martin luther king the civil rights movement and now we're largely better we still struggle but you know we're getting there yep and for for me i i did not have much of an opportunity to build relationships cross-culturally or across um, Mm. ethnicity because of where i lived at do you have any advice for people who, who might be in that sort of context where um, in, in the, in the, this is, I think, especially relevant for, for kids who they, they may have a context in which they could develop cross-cultural and cross-racial friendships, but because their context is so derived from their parents' context, uh, those opportunities might be limited. How do we build relationships in contexts where it might be difficult to even find someone to bridge that divide? That's right. That's a great, great point. And I think there are a lot of people in that situation. So I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, a couple of things I would say um, to, to, to jump right to the hardest part is you may have to move. Mm-hmm. I mean, if 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 racial justice and raising your children, your family in a, such a way that that they're sensitive to these issues, um, there's really no substitute for personal relationships. And the earlier kids get exposed to different kinds of people, the better, the more accepting, the more understanding, uh, the more normal it is. So there's simply the reality that that if this is a priority entire family now that being said i realize people are where they are for all different kinds of reasons and it ain't easy to pick mm-hmm. up and move especially for something uh you know just just this principled um you know, uh, adherence to racial justice, not like you're moving for a job or a promotion or a raise, right? That's different. So I get it. Like, like it's, it's not a lot of people are going to do that. So then what do you do? Well, number one, you look around you and you'll probably find there's more racial and ethnic diversity than you think. Mm -hmm. So it may not be, it may be 95% white, but it's not a (laughs) hundred percent. Um, I was in, uh, uh, Northwest Iowa, of all places, okay. and Iowa is one of the top five whitest states mm-hmm. in the country. It's over ninety percent white people, and the little teeny town where I was, that's literally smelled of cow manure because there were so many farms nearby, had this really significant immigrant population, mostly from Central and South America, mm-hmm. because I mean they're there farming, they're there working, they're there. Uh, starting businesses, right? And and in rural Iowa, I would never would have expected that. But you could hear Spanish, you know, just walking down the street. So there may be pockets of uh, racial and ethnic diversity that that you just really haven't thought of. Um, now it's you have to be very careful and be respectful of those communities because oftentimes they're just this hyper minority, and so like all of these white people flooding them, asking for, you know, conversations over cups of coffee or whatever to talk about race is going to be overwhelming. But you can patronize their businesses. You can go to the same schools. You can um, go to the same churches. Like, like, like all of that's within the realm of possibility. Um, the other thing I would say is regardless of the, the literal amount of racial and ethnic diversity near you, we have to be prepared for living in a multi-ethnic world. Mm-hmm. It's already here. And, and, and we often talk about like this 2040 chronological landmark where 
um, the majority of the United States will be different groups of uh, what are currently minorities, where, where white people will finally be in a, a minority, still a plurality, but a minority. That is already true for young kids, mm-hmm. like kids, teenage and younger. It's already that pluralistic. It's already that diverse. Um, so when we're talking about preparing our kids for it, well, your kid may not stay in that same homogenous environment that you are. Mm-hmm. And do you want them to learn about different races and ethnicities and cultures for the first time when they, I don't know, go off to college, join the military, start a new family? No, you want them to grow up with this. And so it is incumbent upon us as adults with the children in our lives to, to teach them about these things, even though the reality may not be physically present in their proximity. It is almost assured that one day it will be. And the question is, what did we do to prepare them for that future? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the, the point of commitment. And we, we talked briefly about the, the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and all of the awareness that it brought and the sort of like lack of follow-up that we've seen, the lack of any sort of significant change that, that has come from that, unfortunately. But it, there was a time, I think, you know, right after it, and we're seeing all these protests and there was a lot of younger, a lot of younger white people, um, at least in, from my experience and my context, the people that I know who had maybe sort of been on the fence regarding racial justice. They maybe grew up conservative, evangelical, were kind of questioning the, some of the political implications that were coming up from that. And this was like the, the snapping moment for them where they were all of a sudden gung ho. They're ready. They're, you know, they're ready to go. Uh, they're ready to show up and protest. They're ready to use their voice. But historically, we're white and we're here to help. Uh, hasn't always been the best message. Um, <laughs> so that's right. There were all, you know, the, all these people who just don't know. They did not know what they were doing. Um, yeah. But were rushing in and tr- like legitimately trying to help. Want, they had the passion, um, but were really not not furthering things. They weren't helping things. They were taking yeah. the voice away of um, of black people who had been doing the work for years and years. So for those that are used to privilege, used to their voices being heard, but they're new and naive to racial justice, what's the best thing for them to be doing? Oh, such an important question. And I think you hit the nail on your head, on the head with the, the, your framing of it. Um, you know, when helping hurts, right? Like what mm-hmm. do we do when we're trying to help, but we may actually be detrimental. And then even, even more in cities, how, how do we know if we're being hurtful or detrimental because mm-hmm. we may not even be aware of it and that that in and of itself can be paralyzing well i have i have good news and bad news i mean <laughs> the bad news is there's no way around making mistakes in this work um if you're waiting to sort of be completely sure and confident about every single action you take you'll never get started and so the reality is you may get involved with racial justice hoping to do good, thinking you're doing something good. And then somebody pulls you aside and say, actually, that's, that's, that's kind of racist what you did or what you said, or that's paternalistic or whatever it might be. The question is, do you, are you, why are you in this, right? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are, are you in it to feel good about yourself? Because then if someone comes along and says you're doing it wrong and you feel bad, and that's what causes you to get out of it, I would question whether you were in it for the right reason. Mm -hmm. If you're in it to actually prevent harm, to show solidarity with historically marginalized groups, then if you get in it and somebody says you're doing it wrong, you'd be like, I'm so sorry. Will you help me do better? Uh, Or or, or I'm I'm definitely going to change. I won't do that again. Right. That is a fundamentally different motivation. The other thing is, listen, y'all, we have so much work to do. It's all hands on deck. So mm-hmm. there, there are black people who disagree, who take a different stance. But I'm of the opinion that if you want to help, we're going to find a place for you. 
but so 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 do it get involved it's not like we're not gonna need not gonna say uh eh, whatever i don't whatever go sit over there we're gonna say oh thank you finally come on we need some more help um but that also kind of presumes a humility that says there are others who have been in this struggle much longer than I, and I need to learn from them. I don't need, especially as a white person, to take the front seat or the steering wheel on this road that others have traveled much, much longer than I. So that means instead of inventing your own thing, it's going out and finding the places where um, action is already occurring, existing organizations, other individuals who are community leaders who have been doing this kind of a thing. It's, it's understanding and not being so arrogant to presume that you're the first one who thought of this, right? And then seeking out those who, who have been doing this work. Then the last thing I'll say about it is, I think a really big challenge for white people, just as human beings, is to, in a certain sense, be silent partners in this endeavor. By silent, I don't really mean that you never open your mouth. I mean more so that you intentionally take the, the background role, the behind the scenes roles that don't get as much frontward or public attention. And you offer up that space to historically marginalized communities that have been time and time again shut out of those more public and, and uh, front-facing types of endeavors. So maybe you don't give the speech. Maybe you don't share the stage. Maybe you don't put your name on the sponsor list or the logo or whatever it might be, right? I don't know the specifics of it, but wherever you get involved, how can you as a person who has different resources and different connections, help create opportunities for black people and people of color where they have ownership and they can get credit in ways that have so often been denied us throughout history. Mm -hmm. One oh, of the by things, the way, yeah. <laughs> I Go don't, on. I would be remiss not to mention this. Um, never underestimate the power of writing a check. <laughs> like I know that feels mm -hmm. like kind of the mm -hmm. lowest hanging fruit and, and kind of a cop out, but we could go into all the history around the, the, the racial wealth gap and mm -hmm. reparations and all this stuff. Black organizations and organizations led by minorities and women need money and typically have much harder time fundraising than others. So, so that donation, that check, that, ongoing commitment especially if you can make a monthly or recurring donation it's a really big help with cash flow and budgeting and accounting that makes a big old difference so so if you haven't taken that or if you haven't been intentional about doing that on an ongoing basis donations really 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 do help Mm -hmm. yeah that's a that's a good transition to my next question because you know you talked about the framework as the arc framework is very important but the thing that I appreciated most about the book is within that framework, you do give all of these practical examples. And I, I think that prescription is what's lacking with a lot of books um, because you can become aware of the problem, but if you don't know how to solve it, um, you're just kind of left feeling bad. And you're just like, right. well, I feel bad right. about it. Um, right. And, and I, I think that this is not entirely where, you know, white guilt comes from, but if you only ever harp on that aspect of it without saying, well, here's what you can do to fix it, or here's what we can do to make this more equitable. Here's what we can do to, to fix this in, injustice, or if not fixed, then at least begin to shift the balances. Uh, there's a little more hope in the situation to see like, oh, okay, this is, the, and, and, and it's not a big thing. Cause I think sometimes there are so many people that's like, well, I can't, I can't do anything. Uh, and especially for kids because their resources yeah. are, are so limited. Yeah. They might think, well, you know, when I get older, then I'll do this. Or, you know, they might think like, I have to be a politician. I have to, I have to become a representative or a senator or a president, or even, you know, at, at the local level to, to affect any change. What are some practical things that kids could do, you know, right now to fight against racism? I like the way you put it about this 
sense of white guilt, which I typically refer to as godly grief, I hope, you know, Second Corinthians mm-hmm. 7. Um, but I, I do think that sense of sadness is amplified by the feeling of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And we can't do anything. So I think um, with the young reader's version, maybe one of the most important lessons is not directly related to race. And it's this idea of agency. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that even young people have the power to change their circumstances, particularly when it comes to justice. So one of the things kids are really primed to do is to sense when something is fair or not fair. I mean, mm-hmm. any yeah. game they play, <laughs> any race, any whatever, right? They're going to say, that's not fair. And in so many instances, they're right. There's always nuance to it and things like that. But they understand when people are being treated differently and that it may not always be good. So it's important to instill in our kids as well as ourselves a sense of agency that when something isn't fair, when it isn't right, when it isn't just, when it isn't equitable, we can do something about it. But then to your question, it's like, well, all right, give me some specifics. Well, there's a lot um, that we can do. It's going to be really interesting if we raise a generation of young people who are sort of conscious about race. I don't mean like unhealthily obsessed with it, but I talked to so many people, especially white people, but also people of color who said, we never talked about it when I was a kid. We never talked about it growing up. We just assumed this, that, or the other. Wouldn't it be interesting to have not just the race talk, but many race talks with our kids um, so that it becomes normal, so that our kids have a facility. So talking about it is is one. Obviously, kids can do things like a book club. Um, You can help kids as we're teaching them about money. You can teach them about giving to different causes. You can go buy their books at a Black-owned bookstore or even shop online at Black-owned bookstores right and say hey we're getting the same products but by doing this we're supporting communities that have been historically shut out of economic opportunities uh one of the big things i'm big on uh my son is not a big reader he's not excited about this uh young readers version of a book because it's still a book (laughs) (laughs) i know there are some kids who are just voracious i was voracious as a kid but that's not every kid so i like to take him places um, now we're, we're, we, we're in the South where I live in the Delta. And so you can't walk five steps without tripping over something of historical significance, especially related to race. But, you know, making the abstract concrete is really, really, really important. The younger you go. So to taking them to a museum, which like, oh, grown, but look, museums are really well done. And if you can get your kid in the door, there's, almost certainly going to be something that they latch onto that becomes much more vivid to them that they remember uh, taking them to a historical site. So I took my son once, well, many times now to um, the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And it is so powerful. If you have not been, you need to make a special trip to go. It's built onto the, the Lorraine Motel where King was assassinated. And there's actually a wreath right where he was shot when he was standing on the balcony. And my son was probably six or seven when I took him there. And to this day, he remembers that. Even before he knew about MLK and all the significance there, obviously I told him about it, but he didn't really, but he remembers that. And what are those places? What are those spaces? What are those occasions, right? And within their schools or sports teams, kids can always take a role in speaking up for others in interrupting when their friends are telling jokes or saying something ignorant. Um, They can certainly uh, have a movie night with their friends where they're watching something that sort of leads to these discussions. There's once you get started, all I tried to do in the book is get you started. Mm -hmm. These are not the, the sum total of suggestions of what kids can do to fight racism Hopefully it sparks an idea in you and your young people. And then I look forward to just hearing stories from the field about 
what y'all did as a family or what your child did and and all of those things that that can come simply once you have the opportunity yeah <clears throat> yeah i think you you make a really good point in, in that um we, you can't this is a great book but you can't just hand it to your kid and be like that's the conversation yeah uh, you know you, and because we have a tendency don't we to do that just to avoid avoid the difficult conversations because we, we rationalize we'll let the experts handle it so it's like you know uh as a youth pastor i got a lot of uh well it's your job to teach my kid about oh. jesus and about <laughs> spirituality you know and, and it's in you know changing that mindset um is like and i'm i'm here to equip you uh to do the work like that you know it's that, right. that verse in ephesians and and that's really you know the goal of parenting and, and i understand like i, I can re- i really do understand the idea of uh you are the expert i want my child to have the best information the best yeah. teaching possible and and don't we do this in our educational system where it's like you get to a certain a certain grade level and uh, you have teachers for different specialized subjects because they're mm-hmm. really focused academically on this particular thing. Uh, so on topics that are difficult, that are nuanced, that are contentious, uh, we can have that tendency to be like, well, here, here's an expert who talks about it. And there's never that parent child conversation or connection. Um, so now ask someone who has written a book, how do you ensure that that's not the sole conversation or connection between parent and child? Wow, that is a really, really great point. And it comes from somebody who's <laughs> in that situation often, I see. Yeah, I'm just trying to start the conversation. Like, 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 like what really is going to be transformative in our society in mm-hmm. terms of our racial landscape is that parents and adults take ownership of educating the young people in their lives about this and not leaving it to others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in so many cases, we've just been passive about it. And it's not because we don't care. It's a big subject, it's complex, it's intimidating, right? There's all kinds of reasons for it that, that don't make you a bad person. But now that we know now that we've seen this racial justice uprise, now that we've seen the past, I don't know, decade of mm-hmm. events, um, and, and you're concerned enough to listen to this podcast, to, to pick up the book, you got to keep going. And, and the change comes when folks like your listeners say, this isn't up to anyone else. It's not up to Jamar, who wrote the book, it's not up to the podcast host who's doing the interview. It's not up to my school. And most certainly, it's not up to the headlines. We were talking earlier about, you know, our young people are much more sort of justice conscious um, in a lot of cases. But, 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 but we can't let the headlines dictate the depth of knowledge that our kids have on these subjects. We need to do it. We need to see it as our responsibility. And I'm a former teacher. I used to teach sixth grade and I was a middle school principal. So I totally get like you trust the experts to do their jobs. As parents, you're not an expert in every subject and that's okay. Um, But you're still responsible. So you're responsible for vetting the school. You're responsible for uh, getting to know their teachers. You're responsible for making sure they're doing their assignments, all of those kinds of things, even if you aren't directly teaching them. Um, And so there's lots of ways that we can still trust the experts, whether that's watching documentaries or reading the books or attending a presentation, but we're stewarding that experience. Mm -hmm. We are stewarding that experience, meaning we are not abdicating the responsibility and totally saying, oh, well, so-and-so has it. They'll handle it. They're, They're responsible for it. And I trust them to do a good job. Well, yeah, trust people who are trustworthy, but at the same time, understand at the end of the day you're the one as the adult as the loving adult in their life who is ultimately responsible for what they get exposed to our young people and how they're being shaped even discipled uh, when it comes to racial justice Mm -hmm. and so i just i think for most parents it's a time issue and a fear issue. How are we going to do this with the 50,000 other things that we're doing? Well, 
you know, another kind of tough thing to hear is maybe we need to change our priorities. Yeah. Maybe we do three activities instead of four and make room (laughs) for some other things, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe um, the summer vacation isn't just to the beach. Maybe we use that as an opportunity to visit some historical sites or museums or talk to somebody locally. Um, maybe we get creative on birthdays, right? Like, like if there's just, when you start thinking about it, there's so many different scenes in life where you can make the time and make the opportunity. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is fear. I think especially for white parents. It's just like, what if I get it wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, let me take that fear away. You will get it wrong. <laughs> you will say the wrong thing you will bring it up at the wrong time you will think of ways you could say it better later but isn't that true of all parenting isn't that true of all of our interactions with kids where we're trying to teach them something important like we 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 seldom get it perfectly right especially the first time so relax relax they're not going to break you're not going to not going to make them racists forever because you're trying to talk to them or do something for racial justice. Yeah, you may make some mistakes, but they'll be okay. You'll be okay. Learn from it and stay in it and you'll get better. But if you, ne- if you let that fear prevent you even from taking the first step, well, that's a much better way to ensure that your kids come out with some really unhealthy racial ideas than trying to address it however imperfectly yeah and this is a good transition to our last question this is this is more of a personal question it doesn't really involve the book at all um i'm white i have two adopted children who are not Uh, my son is black and my daughter is middle eastern as a dad what do i need to know about raising them they're both young uh four and two uh, what do I need to know about raising them that I don't know intuitively or culturally because I'm white? It's hard to say because, you know, uh, parents of kids from a different racial and ethnic background are coming in at such different points. I can say what is often surprising to white parents of kids of color is how aware their kids constantly are of race um, or how they will be made aware of their race. So even within your own family unit or perhaps even your own community, especially if it's predominantly white, they may not think about it often, but there's always going to be something that reminds them that in a white-centered United States society that they are different and they are other. And as they get older, they're going to be more and more aware of it as they start thinking about dating, as they look around at their classrooms and, and who's there, as they start thinking about further education or, or job prospects, right? Like it only increases. And so it's hard because the way racism works is it makes people of color hyper visible in some ways. And for white people, it makes race invisible. So, so many white people go around life and never really think of themselves as white. Mm -hmm. I'm just Susan or James or Bob or whatever it might be. But your kids of color, you know, we're immediately walking into the room and scanning, are there any black or brown people here? Am I the only one? Mm -hmm. You know, all of that, we're, we're constantly aware of that. And so for a white parent, it's like something major happens and it makes them think about race. For your kids, it could be the littlest thing. It could be reading a picture book and all the kids are white. It could be um, somebody at school calling them a name. It could be feeling like just having a sense that, well, I'm excluded because I'm different. Something about that. So it's on their minds probably a lot more than we realize, which is kind of sad. But knowing that, then you know, maybe we can address it more proactively. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'll say is, and, and I'm sure you know this, but goodness gracious, we got to be so proactive mm-hmm. about giving our kids opportunities to interact with other people who look like them. And that's mm-hmm. going to be hard in some areas if like you're in a 
homogenous environment, right? Mm-hmm. But you might have to go, you, you look, I've heard so many horror stories of like Christians, uh, white parents yeah. Yeah. sending their kids or going with their kids to like white summer camps or Christian camps or something like that. And it's supposed to be this great time of bonding and fun, but, but, but the kids of color just feel so excluded and so different. Well, you know, why don't you as the parent feel excluded and different by going to a, a camp that's, that's, that's more accessible to your kids, racially and ethnically speaking. And there's a million different examples like that. But um, the intentionality that has to go into it, I think, is going to be a little bit bracing for folks who haven't really thought about that with their other kids or in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Jamar, I want to thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. Again, the book is How to Fight Racism. It's Young Readers Edition. Uh, you can also, How to Fight Racism, uh, the book for adults. Both of those are available, uh, will be available at the time that this podcast episode is released. And I think it would be a great, it's, it's going to be after Christmas. So I, this episode will air right at the beginning of the new year, but that's okay. Call it a late Christmas present. Pick up both books uh, for you and for your kid. Read them together. Talk about it together. And pick, pick something practical from the book to do together uh, to begin this fight, to join in this fight uh, against racism. And uh, I think that we can, we can do it. Uh, we can make, if not the world better, uh, let's make our families better and ourselves better and our communities better and, and see how far the ball keeps rolling. Uh, Dr. Tisby, thank you so much for your time and for all the work that you do for your words. Uh, the book is so great. Thank you. Thank you for a very good, hopefully enlightening interview. I really appreciate it and appreciate you giving me access to your podcast audience for this. Hope it's helpful and we'll see you next time.